right, we're going to jump right into it. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Remember last week, <coughs> we left off in verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness. And remember when he was talking about that, it was a great proclamation. He was standing in a great place, surrounded by all this light, all these burning torches, and he makes this statement at a very strategic time. And then we pick up the rest of the conversation here, beginning in verse 30, or excuse me, 13, and we go down to verse 30. But it's all built on that foundation of Jesus saying that he is the light of the world. 13 begins to reveal the Pharisee response. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, this is weird to us for a couple of different reasons. First of all, because we know that what he is saying is true. Jesus is, by definition, the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But what they are getting twisted up about here is, in Hebrew judicial thought, truth had to be verified by two witnesses. And so they are saying, hey, listen, you're just here proclaiming this truth yourself. We don't see a second witness here. What you're saying must be false. And Jesus answers their unbelief. In verse 14, it says this, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. And then follow this logic here. This is a purpose clause. It's an explanation for why his testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about coming from heaven. We've talked about that repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John. His divine origin, his divine nature of where he came from speaks to his authenticity. And then he also talks about where he's going back to, which is, again, heaven. So, I came from heaven, I'm going to heaven, but you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. So, Jesus is, in essence, saying to them, as he has said before, as he will say again, you don't know God. You don't know the things of God. You don't know God who's standing right in front of you. <coughs> and here he says why in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, let's unpack this. Go back to verse 15 when he says here, you judge according to the flesh. And what he's talking about there is according to natural understanding and human standards in this world, which, of course, Jesus does not judge that way. He will never judge that way. But when he says, I judge no one, two things to think about there. He's not saying that he will not one day judge the world, because he says other places that he will. Chapter 3, <coughs> for example, also chapter 12. But what he is saying is, I don't judge the way you do. You're looking at all these external standards. You've created your own scorecard, which went far beyond what God gave uh, you to do. And you judge based on that, and that is inaccurate. It's unhelpful. It's wrong. 
You judge according to the flesh. I don't judge anybody that way. But now in 16, when he says, even if I do judge, here he's talking about this implicit authority that he has in and of himself, but also from God himself. Look back into it there. He refers in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself. So this is a one-off. This is a special thing. Only Jesus can make this statement. And then also he appeals to the Father that sent him. So remember, again, in Jewish thought, coming from God, <coughs> coming from heaven, being associated with God, all those things would have been very, very important. And so Jesus continues to, time after time after time, lay this foundation and speak this truth. And expectedly, in verse 19, they're still not having it. Look at it. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you, neither, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And he, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So two things to notice there, and one of them will be our first principle tonight. The first thing to see here again is time after time after time. In all of these, I think we've seen, what, six verses so far? Jesus continues to make this connection between he and the Father. And anytime you're working through a passage, if you see something repeated, why is that there? It's for emphasis. It's so that we don't miss it, so his audience doesn't miss it. And one of the benefits of doing this type of expositional preaching, if you want to call that, is you get to see how the text builds itself out. So time after time after time, Jesus is making this same statement over and over and over about his divinity and with his connection with the Father. But the principle that I want you to notice here as well is this. Notice the precision of Jesus' timing. Okay, now we've seen this two or three times in the book already. But look at that phrase there. No one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And friends, this is really important in understanding this text, and I think it's pretty important in understanding our lives. Because there are times in the book of John where it just looks like Jesus is having a senior moment or something. He's kind of lost the plot, where things just start to look like they get away from it. But that is never the case. And verses like this remind us of that, that he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly when he's doing it. And he even, in this case, also illustrates he knows exactly where he's doing it. Look back at verse 20 there. He spoke in the treasury. Now, we talked about that last, last week, but let's hit it again since it's in the context here. The treasury would have been this big place with all these basically fancy offering boxes. And Jesus chose that very place to make these very statements and tell them and everyone else that he is the light of the world and to continue to underscore these statements of divinity. So again, the focus there, I think, can be on the precision of Jesus's timing. He knew exactly what he was doing, where he was doing it, how he was doing it, with the specific words that he was going to use to do it, and nothing has gotten away from him. And that is not just true in the life of Jesus, that's true in the life of every one of us in this room as well. There are no accidents, truly, 
in this world. Now, if, if you drop a glass and so you, you, know, you run into somebody in, in the car and that kind of stuff, okay, accidents in that sense. But I'm talking about everything happens either by the, the active direction of God or him allowing certain things into our lives. Now, are they all good? Absolutely not. There's a ton of awful things that happen in everybody's life in this room. But God has a purpose. He has a reason. He has something that he wants to do in the midst of that. And also he uses all of these trials and all of these details in his own life in a precise timing way. So when you and I are tempted to think, has Jesus lost the plot? Has it just spun so far out of control that even he can't do something about it? Friends, go back to texts like this. Remind yourself of this truth. He couldn't even get arrested because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is in charge and has a specific, precise timeline on which he is operating, both in his life and in our life. So take heart. Take courage and encourage yourselves with these truths. Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, this is a hard statement, isn't it? Jesus is very clearly telling them what is about to happen if they stay on the path that they are on. Essentially, one commentator puts it like this. You've been following me around all around Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. You've taken issue with everything I have had to say. You have rejected me. But at some point in the future, you're going to seek me. But at that point, it's going to be too late. That, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. And when you take that as a principle, it could be something like this, that what Jesus said to the Pharisees still holds true for anyone that doesn't turn to Christ. Now, this is not a popular truth in our day. This is a truth that a, a lot of churches actually kind of shy away from. But this is what historic Christianity has believed from the very beginning. I actually encountered one response to this. Uh, I'd never seen this before, but I did see it in Louisville, when we, I was a pastor in a church there, there was a man there that actually believed that, that, that the gospel was going to be preached in this life, and then, if you didn't respond to it, after you died, you were going to get another shot, almost in this purgatory-type environment, and then you'd have another chance to trust in Jesus. But that's not taught in the scriptures. And what Jesus is teaching right here is, there is a time to seek him and find him, and that time is now. That's why the, the, the Bible teaches to seek the creator in the days of your youth. That's why the Bible also teaches that today or now is the day of salvation. There is an urgency to put the gospel in front of people, and there is an urgency for us to respond to the gospel. I actually encountered some, a few people growing up that, that had this other kind of bizarre plan that they misunderstood the love of God in a way like this, that their, their plan was almost like, well, I'm going to sin and do all the bad things that I want to do and, you know, just live it up. And then at the end, 
then I'll turn to Christ. Again, there's no place in the Bible that would lead you to think that that would be the path. The path that the scripture lays out is when the gospel is preached, we need to respond. And we need to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus to every man, woman, boy, and girl that we can. So if I'm talking about this this good news, what is it that I'm talking about? It's the good news that God saved sinners through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus came and he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And then he died on the cross for our sins, a substitute's death, a death that we deserved. And then he rose again to prove that he was God and to vindicate all that he had taught. And now he extends God's glorious grace offer to us. If we will turn from our sins and transfer the leadership of our life over to him. That is the good news of the gospel that these Pharisees were rejecting. And he was saying there was going to come a day that they were going to want in, but it was going to be too late because they were going to persist in their sins. And I think part of the call to us from this section of the text is to not fall into that same damnable pit. It's to turn from sin and trust in Christ. Now, if you've never done that today in just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off. But friend, we welcome you to take Jesus. Take him as your Savior. There's nothing we would want more for you in this life than for you to turn from sin and trust in Christ. Don't be like these people who missed it. Respond to the great love of God. And the fact that you're here tonight, it's not an accident. You're here because God wanted you to be here. So he could tell you again that he loves you and he wants to save you. Don't be like these people. Be like those who heard the good news and responded and were saved. Now, let's look on because we get even more reason to not be like these folks. Verse 22, so the Jews said, and remember when, it, when we talk about the Jews like that, he's not making some kind of anti-Semitic statement. He's talking about this particular group of people that were hostile to Jesus and his claims, the, the, the Jewish establishment, the Pharisees, and so on. And they said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, again, that seems odd for us. But there was culture that was surrounding this here, and this was a wicked, sarcastic jibe. They believed that suicide caused a person to occupy the worst place in hell. Josephus, a Jewish historian, said, the souls of those whose hands have done violence to their own lives go to the darkest Hades and God, their father, will visit the sins of the evildoers on their descendants. So that's what they believed. And when they're saying this to Jesus, they're basically mocking him. And they're saying, well, Jesus must be about to kill himself, and he's going to go to hell. And we are so righteous and perfect before God, of course we're not going to go to where he is. The, the self-righteous disdain and contempt for Jesus and his teaching just drips from their logic here. And then Jesus speaks to them again. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. 
I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So what Jesus is essentially saying is this, that he is not of this world, and that salvation is found only in him. Now this word that he uses here for world is cosmos. It's a word frequently used in the Greek New Testament to refer to the evil world system. And basically what Jesus is saying here, to use a sports metaphor, is that there are two teams. And we're on completely different teams. You are setting your hope in this world, even though you don't think you are, you are. And you're part of this system that is against me and mocking me. And it cannot mix with this otherworldly system that I am bringing. This is oil and water. This is two completely different ontological sets of being. One from below and one from above. And then on top of that, the language that Jesus uses here is very interesting. When he says, I, unless you believe that I am. Now, they would have keyed in on something with that in their Jewish understanding because He'd already told them that I am the light of the world, right? That was back in verse 12. But now when he says, I am he, what many people think he's talking about there is a connection to Exodus chapter 3. That when God calls Moses and then tells him to deliver his people from Egypt, when he speaks to Moses and Moses says, who should I tell them is sending me? God answers, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am God. I am the God of Exodus chapter 3. I am the God of Moses and Jacob and Israel and so on and so forth. And then on top of that, he's also made this messianic claim in verse 12 about being the light of the world and throughout this passage he has continued to underscore his connection with God and God the Father now there's one other thing to point out here as well look back at the word unless in verse 24 so even in the midst of the these very clear blazingly honest statements there's still grace mixed in there. Because had they turned from their sins and believed in what Jesus was saying, he would have saved them just like he saved any of us. That's how gracious God is. That's how good God is. He will tell us the truth about ourselves. And he will receive us as we repent. But also notice this. Look back at the beginning of 24, and then you see it again. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. And then again, he says, unless you believe, you will die in your sins. So again, that repetitious, or repetition is emphatic, and it's purposeful. Jesus is telling them and us, this is as serious as it can be, and this is a fate to be Avoided. Now, there's another principle that I want to pull out from this. And it goes back to what I was talking about there about understanding who Jesus was claiming to be 
when he says you got to believe that I am he. And the principle is this, that what we think about Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. What we think about Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. And I take this from a quote. It was a man named A.W. Tozer, wrote some really helpful stuff over the years. And he said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think here, for the sake of this passage, let's drill down a little bit more specifically and let's make that about the Lord Jesus himself. And friends, this was of paramount importance in this conversation with these folks because they didn't get it, they didn't see it, they didn't understand that God was standing right in front of them. And the same is true for us today. Because there are so many Jesuses that are presented to us in our cultural moment. There, there is the Jesus of the far left that endorses pretty much anything. Whatever anti-biblical agenda you want to fill in the gap, there is a Jesus somebody somewhere is communicating that is okay with anything that's running rampant today. There is also a Jesus of the extreme far right that endorses anything on that side. And what we have got to do time after time after time is to go back and let Jesus speak for himself through the Bible. Jesus gets to determine who Jesus wants to be. And the best thing that we can do and the wisest thing that we can do is not try to hang our own views of Jesus upon himself. It's to exegete what's here and figure out what he says about himself. Why does it matter so much that he is the light of the world? Well, part of it, go back and listen to last week, you'll get some of it. But we live in spiritual darkness that only Jesus can illuminate. We live in a moment of historical darkness that only Jesus can illuminate. We don't need a counterfeit Jesus that someone else has constructed for us. We need the real Jesus from the Bible. We always have, but we especially need him now because everything, everything these days is complicated to try to sort it out. And we need his light and we need his wisdom and we need the real Jesus to help us do that. And that means sometimes the real Jesus is going to confront some of the things that we think. He's going to say stuff that we don't like. He's going to stress time and time and time again that he is the only way to salvation. Everything in our culture rages against that. How dare someone stand up and say that they are the path to heaven? The real Jesus did. But you know what? I'm so thankful. Because he did say that. And if we put our faith and trust in that truth... We can not only be saved for heaven, but we can find true peace and purpose and meaning and healing and true satisfaction in this life. But it's only found in Christ. But even in the midst of all of this, and even in the constant and repeated, almost redundant communication in this passage, they still don't get it. Look at verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? 
And I remember studying this this week and being like, he's been telling you for eight chapters and you keep asking him. So I don't think the problem is on his end, it's on your end because he keeps answering it the same way. And you know who else feels that way? Jesus, look at this. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I was like, I feel that, I feel it. 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So you can almost sense somewhat of a legitimate, holy exasperation from Jesus at this point. One commentator says it like this. He says, he interprets it this way. Why do I even speak to you at all? From the beginning, I've been telling you about my unity with the Father. And the fact is, when I speak, he speaks. And when I act, he acts. But you have not responded to that. I think that's a pretty good summation of what he's saying here. And it's very much in line with what Paul talks about over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He's talking about this same idea and why people don't get it sometimes. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So let me give you a little bit of help in this regard. Every one of us has people in our lives that, that do not get us, that do not get what we believe. They do not get the way we do whatever it is we do, whether it's parenting or deciding to move here to do whatever or, or what, all those things. Sometimes the reason why that is, is they just, they can't get it. It has to be spiritually discerned. And so what do we do when we encounter those situations? Well, I think a couple of things. Let me tell you what not to do first. Do not let that puff you up and make you arrogant and go, well, I'm glad I figured it out because these other whatevers, that's a completely wrong response. The first thing would be immense gospel gratitude, that we should just be overcome with a sense of thankfulness that God in his sovereign kindness has shown us the truth. That's the first thing. And if we work and speak and love and act out of a place of gospel gratitude and humility, then as we pray for them and love them and try to appeal to them and try to reach them, it's going to come from a totally different place. It's not going to come from a place of looking down on our nose at somebody that can't figure it out. It's going to come from a place of looking up to God and being thankful that he showed us the truth and asking him that he would show them the truth and that they would get it and that they would not be like the people in this text. Because apart from the grace of God, all of us would be the people in this text. It is the grace of God that makes us what we are. So that's part of why they didn't get it. They weren't embracing Jesus. They, 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 the lights had not come on for them yet. And verse 27 to 30 tells us that. Look at that. It says, They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So think about that. How many times just in these few verses he says it and says it and says it again, and then you read backwards, and he said it all the way up to this point. 
But then he says this, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So lifted up the Son of Man, most people think that that is his crucifixion, when he has been crucified and lifted up on the tree. I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And then I love this. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So the last two principles I want to close tonight both come from this little section of text. The first one we've talked about repeatedly, but I want to crystallize it for us. Jesus and God the Father are inextricably linked. Let me tell you one other reason why that's important. We've talked about the divinity of Jesus from this angle for weeks now. But here's another reason why it's important in our day. There are many in our culture that want the teachings of Jesus that do not want the authority of Jesus. They like the stories. They like how he's kind to little children and and, and the, the, the love that he emanates, but they don't want him to be God. You don't get to choose. He either is this and that, or he's nothing. It's back to that same idea. We cannot redefine him. We have to let him speak for himself. And that divine authority comes from this inextricable link that God has sent him. He is God. Always has been, always will be, there was never any confusion about that throughout the scripture. Now, the other thing I want you to point out here, kind of more practically, notice this, that the unbelief of the hostile sum cannot derail the conversion of the hearing others. Let me say that again. The unbelief of the hostile sum cannot derail the conversion of the hearing others others. So right there in the midst of all this, you can imagine the way I kind of think about this is, is that this wasn't like two people standing there calmly debating and I yield my time to the senator on, on the floor. I, this, this seems like a pretty testy conversation that is happening here. And in the midst of these people, time and time and time and time and time and time again, not getting it, there's at least a few of them they got saved on the spot. That's the grace of God, friends. And it is so easy for us as we're going out and we're talking to people about Jesus and we're trying to be faithful and look for evangelistic opportunities and we're trying to speak into those that you get 275 people that don't even care what you're talking about. And then one person says, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And they get saved authentically in that very moment. I think that's the way it's always been. That there will be some that do believe. There will be many that don't. But there will be some that do. And so I think part of kind of a reminder from this passage is don't let the angry mob keep you from telling the truth 
Because there's some out there that really are looking. And they really are listening. And they really do want to hear truth. Now, are they going to probably get up and ask a bunch of questions? No, they're probably going to sit back and listen and probably fade into the background. But those people, all of those people, need to hear the good news about Jesus. So take that kind of as a postscript good news reminder that as you proclaim the gospel out there and you're faithful to do that, not everybody is going to meet it with hostility. Some people are going to meet it with authentic belief in Jesus. So let's wrap all this up. Not a lot of verses tonight, but boy, we covered a lot of ground. Let's think back about some of the things that we talked about tonight. The precision of Jesus' timing. The fact that what he said to the Pharisees still holds true, that we've got to trust in him for salvation. He's the only way. The fact that what we think about Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. The fact that he and God the Father are inextricably linked. And that as we proclaim the gospel, some will repent and believe. Friends, in all of that, or maybe in something else, what is it that the Lord is resting on your heart tonight? What is giving you comfort? What is giving you courage? What is challenging you? Whatever it is that the Lord is saying to us through this passage tonight, let's just open ourselves up to the real Jesus that has been revealed to us. And let's see what he wants to do with it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. We know that when your word goes out, it will not return void. And so, Lord, we pray and ask for your hand upon us in this moment to be good soil. That we would lean in where you are leaning on us. That we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the greatness of who you are, the clarity with which you speak, and also the comfort that you offer. Lord, for those who are there who, or who are here who might not yet know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation just like we spoke about. For those of us who do, Lord, I pray that we would be further encouraged in who you are and what you've done and in seeking to share that with other people. Lord, we pray for some fresh opportunities this week to be able to speak your name to people. We pray that we'd have the boldness to step into that. And Lord, finally, we pray for the conversations that will happen after today, community groups, so on and so forth, that the word would continue to bear much fruit in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.